It's uh, one of those stories, one of those Bible stories that just always convicts me because it reminds me that what may look good in my eyes doesn't always look good in the eyes of God. In fact, this is one of those stories that there are times when I read it, it just scares me because it reminds me of how easily I can be deceived. I, I can think everything's okay. Hey, my faith, my walk with God, yeah, I'm doing fine. And yet the truth may be from God's perspective, I'm way off track and far from where he wants me to be. The story that I'm talking about is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Moses has led God's people out of Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. But in order to reach this goal, they have to travel across a vast desert. And so making this journey across this barren land is going to be anything but easy. I mean, one of the many challenges they're going to encounter along the way is trying to find water. And you've got to keep in mind, this is not some family making this trip. It is a whole nation of Israelites that need to get from point A to point B. And there's not an abundance of resources to be found out here in the desert, which means the potential for trouble is enormous. Sure enough, at one point in the journey, they find themselves in a place where there's no water. I mean, none at all. And the people are in a state of panic. So Moses prays, and God provides them with a solution. Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Speak to the rock, Moses. That's all you got to do. Just speak to the rock and the water will flow. Now, you need to appreciate that what God's talking about here, we're not talking about the water pouring out of the faucet in your kitchen sink so you can fill a glass. We're talking about something much bigger than that. I mean, this mountain that the Israelites are now staring at is about to be transformed into a giant fire hydrant. So when the water comes gushing out, it'll come flowing out like a river. So nobody, people or animals, has to worry about being last in line. Hey, don't take too much. Make sure there's enough left for us. That's not going to be an issue here. With that river flowing out of the side of that hill, there's going to be more than enough water to quench everybody's thirst. I mean, this miracle will be an awesome display of the glory of God. But something happens between that prayer time that Moses has with God and the actual performance of the miracle. God has given Moses a very simple solution to a massive problem. Just speak to the rock and the water will flow. That's not hard to remember and that's not hard to obey. And yet for some reason, Moses becomes careless with God's command. He chooses not to be faithful. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice with the staff. Now, the miracle occurs anyway. The water flows, people are saved, and Moses is a hero. I mean, from a human point of view, what has happened here is so impressive. Anybody there that day trying to evaluate Moses and his leadership effect effectiveness would have given this guy a perfect 10. Hey, what do you think of Moses? How, how would you judge his ministry to the, to the people, to the Israelites? Would you say his ministry has been powerful, been effective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The guy just performed a miracle. The guy just solved a gigantic problem. Hey, would you say his ministry to the people, you know, on, on, this, on this angle, of it, would you say his ministry to the people has been relevant? Relevant? Giving water to thirsty people in the desert? How can you be more relevant than that? Or how would you judge his ministry in terms of strategies? Has he been strategic? Yeah. He just equipped the Israelites with all the resources they need so they can finish the journey. They can reach the goal. They can move on to the promised land. I mean, in the eyes of all the people, Moses is a success, a stunning success. But not in the eyes of God. All the people are impressed, but the Lord isn't. In fact, because of this incident, God will punish Moses. He will not be allowed to enter the promised land. And why? Why is he being judged so harshly? Because Moses was not faithful. God said, 
speak to the rock. Not strike it with your staff. And rather than do things God's way, Moses decided to do things his way. And the Lord was not pleased. Faithfulness is a forgotten virtue in our world today, isn't it? You know the story, a young a teenage girl, she's madly in love with this young man, so she gives him a picture of herself, sets this picture inside a beautiful frame, and there on the front she writes these touching words, Todd, I love you more than life itself, yours forever, Ashley. So moving. But two months later they break up and Todd discovers there was a note written on the back of the picture, kind of an escape clause. Ashley wrote, if we ever break up, I want the picture back, and my mother wants the frame. <laughs> Man, nothing's permanent anymore. People don't stick with things like they used to. They may stick with something as long as it's convenient. They may stick with something as long as it seems to be working out for them. But when it stops working out, they don't hesitate at all to move on to something else, to something better. Change jobs, change churches, change brands, change spouses. Some people will do that at the drop of a hat. And why? Because faithfulness, commitment, loyalty, those words are not a part of our vocabulary anymore. Staying the course, keeping your word, seeing something through, that's just not a big deal in our world anymore. But I can tell you this, it's still a big deal in the eyes of God. Again and again, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, God just keeps coming back to the same theme. Timothy, be faithful. But how? How can this happen? How do we remain faithful, Lord? See, i got to be honest. My Christian life, it is anything but consistent. <laughs> Some days I feel like one of those giant inflatable figures, one of those giant Gumby-like figures you see at the used car lot. You know what I'm talking about? Those tall, skinny, balloon-like figures that are all the time going up and down and up and down. I mean, every, they never stay up straight. Every 10 seconds it's rise and fall and rise and fall again. Well, sometimes that's a picture of my Christian life. There are days when my heart swells and my spirit's strong because I did something good for God. <laughs> all right. And yet within 24 hours, I'm all deflated, flat on the ground, because once again I failed the Lord. I dropped the ball. Faithful? Hardly. So this that we're talking about today, being faithful, Lord, is this even possible? Yes. Yes. 2 Timothy chapter 2 shows us how. Now, I want you to take a look at this with me, but as we're working our way through the scripture, I, I want you to keep an image in mind. I want you to understand what we mean by faithfulness. Let's say we're taking a trip. We're going all the way from Boston to Seattle, more than 3,000 miles. Long trip, going to take a long time to get there, which means in order to reach our destination, we're going to have to be faithful. But what does that faithfulness look like? Well, at one stage of the journey, man, you're flying, you're out there in the interstate, you're doing 70 miles an hour, you're making all kinds of good time. Life is a breeze and everybody's having fun, but not every stage of the journey is going to be like that. Sooner or later, you have to slow down. You enter a construction zone, and things start to get frustrating because now you can't, because of the obstacles, you can't move as fast as you want. Still faithful, still headed towards Seattle, still intending to reach your destination, but right now you're moving at a much more slower pace. And then, sure enough, somewhere along that journey, there's going to be some trouble. Maybe it's a flat tire, and you have to pull off to the side of the road, and now you're stuck. You're, you're at a standstill. You can't even move at all, but... The car is still pointed towards Seattle. I mean, eventually, after you get the tire fixed, you hope to be back on the road again. You intend to finish this destination. You're still intending to reach Seattle. So even though you're not moving right now, you're still faithful. That's the Christian life. 
There are going to be seasons in our life when, man, you're just flying, making all kinds of progress, just growing by leaps and bounds, prayers being answered left and right in dramatic and powerful ways, your individual ministry just flourishing and growing. Man, life couldn't be better. But your entire Christian life is not always going to be like that. There are going to be seasons when you have to slow down. Opposition arises. People begin to criticize. Friends and colleagues who'd always been there before have had to move on to other things, and now life's getting tough. I mean, you're still faithful. You still come to be with the church each Sunday. You still read your Bible every day. But right now, you're not seeing a lot of progress because you're having to move at a much slower pace. And in this season of life, it's hard not to get discouraged. And then there are going to be those times when trouble hits. And you're stuck. I mean, literally at a standstill. Maybe it's a moment of grief, a devastating loss in your life. Or maybe you come upon a hardship, a, a challenging moment where suddenly everything in your world becomes so dark, honestly, you don't know what the next step's supposed to be. How can I move forward when I, I'm not even sure what that step is supposed to be? It's Psalm 88. When you, step down, when you step into Psalm 88, you step down into the basement of that book, 150 Psalms, many of them bright, cheerful, uplifting, edifying, but you get to Psalm 88. <laughs> it's dark. I mean, there's barely a word of praise. I mean, other than a slight reference in verse 1, other than that, it, from beginning to end, it's just filled with despair. The psalmist is just talking about his trouble. From beginning to end, he's just overwhelmed with trouble. And yet, here in Psalm 88, in, in the midst of this darkness where he can't even move at all, yet in Psalm 88 with this poem, this song that he sings, he's still talking to God about that darkness. At least he's still talking to God about that trouble, though he can't move, yet his heart is still facing the Lord. He is being faithful. That's the Christian life. It is a long obedience in the same direction. It is a long journey, and along the way, there are going to be all different kinds of challenges along the way. Sometimes we're running. Other times we're just walking. Other times we're just barely putting one foot in front of the other. And other days we're at an absolute standstill. But as long as our heart is still facing God, we are still faithful. It makes sense. Now keep that image in mind as we work our way through this text. Just the first two verses is all I want us to look at this morning. So stay with me. It says, you then, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you then, Timothy, you then, my son, meaning you, Timothy, in contrast to all those other people that Paul was just talking about in chapter 1, verse 15, all those people in the province of Asia who've deserted Paul, all those people who've walked out and checked out and given up on the gospel and given up on God because they decided to try something else. In contrast to them, you, Timothy, be different. You, Timothy, distinguish yourself from them and distinguish yourself how? By being faithful. How exactly is he supposed to be faithful? The last part of the verse, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now you need to appreciate two things about how this verse is written. Number one, it's written in the present tense, which means this is something you've got to do every day. Once a week's not enough. Every day you've got to be, you've got to refuel. Every day you've got to be made strong again. And the second thing to keep in mind about this verse is it's written in a passive voice, which means this is not something we do for ourselves. This is something we allow God to do for us. It is it's God who makes us strong with his strength. Here's how I picture it. You're on a plane. You're getting ready to take a trip. And the flight attendant gets up in, in front of everybody to give these, these instructions. 
You know, but FAA requires that before any commercial flight takes off from the runway, the flight attendant has to get up and talk about these safety tips. Even though you've heard these instructions a thousand times before, FAA requires, hey, nothing to be taken for granted here and must be repeated again and again and again. So the flight attendant gets up in front of all the passengers and says, should something happen on this flight? Should the cabin lose pressure? No, that the oxygen mask will fall from the panels above your head. Pull that mask toward yourself. Put it on your nose and your mouth. Tighten the straps and breathe normally. If you are traveling with small children or those who need assistance, please secure your mask first before trying to assist others. And I hear that and I think to myself, how selfish. I just sound so selfish. I mean, shouldn't you be trying to help? Shouldn't you be thinking about others when an emergency hits? And yet, the more I think about it, the more I realize those instructions from that flight attendant are incredibly wise and strategic. How am I going to help others breathe when I'm not getting any air for myself? If I don't keep the mask on myself, it's not going to be long before I pass out. And now, instead of being able to help others, I become a part of the problem too. That's what the Bible's talking about here. Every day you've got to keep the mask on. Let God put his divine oxygen in your soul. How does he do that? Reading the Bible, praying, staying in conversation with the Lord. I know, I know, sometimes reading the Bible, praying, some days that just seems so dull, so boring, so flat, so routine. Some days it just makes you wonder, is this doing any good at all? But every day you've got to keep that mask on. You need that breath. In fact, later on, 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talked about this very thing. This book is no ordinary book. This is God's book. Literally, he says there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it is a God-breathed book. Every day you've got to give God a chance to breathe into your soul, to fill your life with his grace and his truth, to fill your soul with his love and his wisdom. Because without that air, you can't remain faithful. Think about it. You close the Bible, you stop praying, you do that for a number of days, it's like you turn the generator off and the balloon collapses to the ground. Your soul just falls it's God who gives us the energy to stay the course. It's God who enables us to remain faithful. Every day, we've got to be made strong with the strength that he provides. Now, that's the how. The last thing I want to address is the what. Be, be faithful doing what? And, and he answers that here in verse 2. He says, and the things, Timothy, Paul's talking to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the things you've heard me say, and one way to take this verse is that, you know, you've heard me preach the gospel. You've heard me preach this message again and again and again in the presence of all different kinds of people. It's one way to take the verse. You can also take the verse, Timothy, you've heard me preach this many, many times, and you've heard so many other people witness and testify to the very same thing. You've heard me preach this. You've heard many other people preach it. Timothy, that's the message you've got to take. And now you've got to entrust it to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, we're being told what God has done for us is never just for us. It's supposed to be for others, too. And not just the people we see right here, right now, but for that second, third, and fourth generation that's coming after us. What God has done for us is never just for us. It's supposed to be for others, too. That's why I love the story of Elijah. One of the greatest prophets of all time. I mean, the miracles that he performed were astounding. Calling down fire from the sky, raising people from the dead, and then the way that he went to heaven, riding to glory in a chariot of fire. What a remarkable life he lived. But his greatest achievement is what happened after he left. That protege that he developed, that young man, Elisha, that he took under his wings and taught and trained 
and invested it. And because of that, once Elijah left, now there's somebody ready to take his place. Now there's somebody ready to be the next prophet of Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us because Elijah took the time to invest in him, once Elijah left, now Elisha, the second guy, he received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Meaning what? Meaning that Elijah, the first guy, his greatest contribution to this world was, was not the 14 miracles he performed. It's found in the 28 miracles performed by his protege. Elisha, the second guy, took all those blessings that God had poured down upon his mentor, and now he took those blessings and multiplied their impact and made the impact even greater. What God has done for us, it's never just for us. It's supposed to be for others, too. That's why the Apostle Paul's writing this letter. In fact, a lot of people believe this letter, 2 Timothy, is more than just a letter. What we have here is the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. And you need to appreciate when Paul's writing a will, the image that he has in mind is much different from the image we might have in mind. You know, we think about writing a will, we're thinking of a legal document. Here's how this person wants their assets, their property, their possessions to be dispersed to others, which is good and fine, and that needs to be done. But, but the Apostle Paul, when, what he's doing here in writing a will, he has a different image in mind. He's thinking of the Old Testament. He's thinking of the senior patriarch. You see this so many times. The senior patriarch realizing that his time is up. So he gathers all the children and grandchildren around his bed so he can make one final speech and then lay his hands on them to pass along a blessing. It's what you see in the book of Genesis when Isaac's old and he blesses Jacob. It's what you see at the end of Genesis when Jacob himself is now near death and he lays his hands on the heads of his two grandsons. Joseph's boy. It's what you read later on when Moses chooses to bless Joshua and what you read later on when David, realizing as a king he's coming to the end of his reign and he wants to get the next guy ready to sit on the throne. That next guy happens to be his son Solomon, so he takes time to bless him. You need to understand in every one of those situations, they're not just handing him a Hallmark card and say, hey, best wishes on your future. No, it's something much more significant than that. A torch is being passed. A real sense of authority is now being transferred. A vision for life is now being cast. Here's what I see for you and your future. A legacy is being handed down from one generation to the next. And that's what we have with this letter. Paul's saying, Timothy, let's be honest. You know, I know. My days are numbered. A couple weeks, I'm going to be gone. It, it's my time to depart. But when I leave, I want to be sure to leave something behind. And I want to leave behind more than just a monument in the cemetery or a few ashes in an urn. I want to leave behind more than just an insurance policy or a piece of real estate. No, Timothy, I want to leave you something that's going to make an eternal difference in your life. So one last time, as I write this letter, one last time, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Timothy, I just want to remind you what I've learned from him what I've received from him, because Timothy, I want to make sure you receive this too. And Timothy, what I'm doing here, right here, right now, you got to do the same thing for others, the others that are coming after you. Because Timothy, this, this family tree we've established, this spiritual family tree, Timothy, we got to keep this tree growing and growing and growing. In other words, it's not enough to keep the faith. No, we got to be faithful in passing the faith along to others. Too. One of the men that I just love to read his books is Gordon MacDonald. Years ago, I read in his book about time he was on a vacation in Vermont. And one day he went out for a walk, one of those old country roads, you know, just get some exercise, just kind of enjoy the scenery. This time of the year, it's beautiful out there. He's walking down this old country lane when he knows his way out in the fields, this old guy working with some small trees. So Gordon said he just stopped and watched him for a while, and he says, man, I'm just impressed with the care and attention that old guy was giving these little trees. 
And then Gordon said, it, it kind of hit me, he's not going to see those trees in their prime. I mean, this guy, this old guy, he's not going to live long enough to be able to actually enjoy those trees, the shade they provide, the fruit they bear. So why is he working so hard? So Gordon just climbed over the fence and went over to talk to him. And Gordon McDonald says, I will never forget that man's response because when I asked him about those trees, he said, I don't expect to see them in their prime. I'm not doing this, self, this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren. I'm planting and cultivating these trees Forty years from now, what kind of church is New Hope going to be? Do you ever stop to think about that? Do you ever stop to pray about that? Are we putting anything in place right now that 40 years from now is going to make a difference for others? Are we putting anything in place right now that 40 years from now is going to encourage others to want to trust Jesus and follow him too? You see, our vision here at New Hope is not just be disciples. Our vision is be disciples who make disciples. Because we really believe that what God has done for us, it's never just for us. It's supposed to be for others too. So, will we be found faithful in doing what God asked us to do? Will we be disciples who make disciples and make disciples in such a way that for generations to come, others will have an opportunity to follow Jesus